a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime wrong thinker or just wrong think curious, I'm glad you're with us today. And what you're going to find is that this is a place where truth does not violate our community standards. In fact, it's encouraged, even though it may sometimes be uncomfortable, occasionally painful. We're all about seeking truth here. I don't claim to have cornered the market on truth, but I'm doing my level best to ask the kinds of questions and explore the possibilities that will help you and I better see the world as well as better understand who we are and what we stand for. As opposed to simply being, you know, given talking points as to here's who or what we're angry about today. We've always got a lot of great material. I am thankful for sponsors who make this program possible, including GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, to begin today... I thought I would uh, would share with you the most recent essay from Paul Rosenberg. I love this guy's writings, and I think he has a lot of practical advice, but I think what I love most is his approach is uh, not dogmatic, it's, and it's not wrapped in anger, and it's not wrapped in fear. There's a lot of practicality in what he advises, but there's uh, there's also a gentleness here, and there's light, and that's what I find very, very useful. And he has an essay out here about dealing with violence, which I don't know about you. I, I mean, as, as kids, we were taught, you know, you never hit somebody. That's bad, bad, bad. But there are times when violence is appropriate. But the problem is most people don't know when those times are because they've never really experienced it. Now, the exception to this rule would be someone who has studied any of the martial arts, whether you learned boxing, whether you learned jujitsu or, you know, karate or taekwondo or anything like this, people who have actually learned about and experienced it. In other words, if you've been punched, if you have been choked out, if you've been given a good judo throw, you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of violence. And this also helps you to better understand those times when it's appropriate as opposed to when it isn't. I strongly recommend anybody who wants to, you know, uh, get themselves or their kids into a, a place where they can learn to trust their own judgment. Study martial arts. It's not going to go make you, you know, some, you know, I'm just trying to think of who would be a good. They won't make you Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not going to turn you into somebody who's, who's out there kicking butts in every episode. But it will turn you into somebody who has skill as well as confidence in knowing, look, worst comes to worst, I can handle myself, but you also understand that there are times where it may be appropriate. But let's go to Paul Rosenberg's essay. He says, look, I advocate keeping children as far as possible from violence, even from the concept of violence, for as long as possible. It's simply not good for them. Unfortunately, he says, our world, while it certainly has beautiful parts, also contains violence, and so children will run into it at some point. Now, he says, just to reiterate, I'm kind of a purist on this. I think kids should be kept away even from violent heroes. 
Nonetheless, violence will make its appearance and children should be prepared. So he says today's installment shouldn't apply to young children, but it will to older children. Now, he says one of the first things to understand about violence is that it never proves anyone right or wrong. Now, people portray it that way, but it's a ridiculous concept. Having better weapons or faster fists means absolutely nothing about being right or wrong. Because you're talking about primitive force and nothing else. And yet sometimes, he says, primitive force does matter. I mean, we certainly have to use it against wild animals. Sensible cooperation with them simply isn't possible. And sadly, there are people with whom reasonable cooperation isn't possible. There really are human predators. Now, not terribly many, thankfully, but they do exist. Paul Rosenberg writes, Violence does not come naturally to us. Our mental and emotional systems don't react well to it. And the people who are particularly good at violence are people who have been hardened by it. But he says they'd be better and happier if they hadn't had those experiences. Nearly all of us encountering violence for the first time are simply unprepared. We freeze in place, we run or hide. That's just what happens to most of us. But it's not important that we've been frozen by fear because we can also get over it. Think of an old person you knew who was facing death, maybe a grandparent. They knew they were going to die. And how much worse is death than a punch? Did your grandparent lie in bed, shivering and screaming in fear for weeks or months? No. They got over it. They might not have liked the situation, but they were able to process the fear. And his point is, you can too. So if and when a moment of violence comes, he says your job is to stop questioning yourself. You must think only of the objective, letting that drive your body. And yes, that is animal-level thinking, because that's what violence is. Animal stuff. If violence comes, think of nothing except subduing your enemy. And if there's nothing you can do about the situation, you're just going to have to get through it. And if that means, and that means stopping your normal questioning processes and serving only the goal of your enemy being soundly defeated. Now that's ugly, because violence is ugly. Now he says, before getting back to a few specifics, remember, it's far better to avoid violence than to deal with it. Even if you're supremely ready for it, violence is always a damaging waste. Stay away from it. Pay attention to your surroundings. Don't let questionable people drag you along with them and get the heck away if things start to worry you. Now, from here, he goes into a discussion of the bully's weapon and points out that predators know if they can make you afraid, they are in control of you. And how do they know this? Well, because they've lived through it themselves and probably many times. Every bully has been abused in one way or another. Now they want to impose their pain upon you. And they know by experience that once they were frightened, they were disarmed, and then they were beaten. So the bully gets relief from the memory of his own weakness and pain by abusing others. His or her cruelty springs from weakness and fear. And do you see the corollary to this? Strength and compassion, or strength and wholeness, rather, are what give us compassion. You don't have anything to prove. So when a predator decides to prey upon someone, the first thing they do is intimidate them. They want to see fear before they proceed. A bully will almost always test their victim before attacking. Now, so if someone is too intrusive or threatening and your instincts start to make noise, you have a predator on your hands. He's testing you to see if you'll be easy to beat. 
Ignoring the test is a sign of fear. Denying that the predator is there, the head in the sand tactic, is exactly what he's looking for. Hardened predators see reasonableness and kindness as weakness. They believe that no one would show kindness unless he or she had to. Now, running away may not help either. It's another indication to the predator that you can be taken. So in the twisted mind of a predator, there exist two primary classes of human beings, predators and victims, and there's very little in between. So when a predator starts to feel a bit weak, he has to intimidate or abuse someone else just to prove that he or she is not in the victim class. Predators who want their props have a good reason for it. To accept disrespect identifies them as victims, and that means other predators will start circling. Also, bear in mind that there are many people who grow up in predatory cultures. This is the only way they know of viewing the world. Now, that's not to excuse them, but we should understand what, in fact, they are. Paul Rosenberg says, if, you, if, if someone sees all the world as a predator and prey, then you have no hope of talking them out of it, and you cannot allow a predator to dictate your actions. So he says, before we go through the classic confrontation, like the bully in the bar, let's start with this. If you're in a nasty enough place to encounter a bully looking to prove something, you're either exceptionally unlucky or you've gotten yourself into a stupid situation. Use some common sense and you'll avoid these wasteful experiences. That said, a bully in a bar is almost a perfect setup for an intimidation. Not only can the bully surprise you, but he can make you feel multiple types of fear. Beyond the fear, the obvious fear of a beating, he can also make you afraid of looking weak in front of your friends or potential mates. Now, from here, he goes into three rules for dealing with bullies. And unfortunately, I'm going to leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger here for a moment because we are coming up fast on our break. Look, it's a reality. You're going to encounter bullies at some point in life. And it doesn't mean that you've got to puff up and be bigger and badder and more violent and, you know, more more threatening. You know, you need more tattoos. You need more piercings. You need, you know, more uh, openly worn weapons, chains and the like. No. Because so much of it just takes place in between your ears. So we'll come back with Paul Rosenberg's three rules for dealing with bullies. I think you're going to find these very useful. Should you have the bad fortune to encounter a bully... We'll also talk about some of the different kinds of bullying. It's all straight ahead. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking about dealing with violence, and that uh, often entails dealing with bullies. Got a great essay here from Paul Rosenberg. I've got it linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you find yourself on my show notes page, take a second and hit that subscribe button, and I will uh, save you the trouble of having to search it out. I will put it in your email inbox each morning that I do this program. It's it's, a... Great opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into some of the topics of things that are going on around us and uh, to further educate yourself, further strengthen yourself in terms of your ability to sort fact from fiction. So Paul Rosenberg's three rules for dealing with bullies. These are pretty simple and straightforward. Number one, show no fear. 
Now, feeling fear is not a real problem. It's just don't show it. Secondly, do not insult or challenge the bully. And number three, give them an exit that doesn't require them to accept the status of victim. So here's how that works. This is, this is what it looks like in application. Paul Rosenberg says, we all feel fear, and it's just an unfortunate inheritance. So absorb the fear and learn how to hold a straight face. Now, he says, this is difficult and unpleasant, but life on earth is a long way from what it should be. Sorry. Also, he says, do not allow yourself to say, well, maybe it's not that bad because it is that bad. A predator is preparing to crush you. Many of us have an instinct to deny things that are too unpleasant, but you must not allow it. Denial will make it almost certain that you get hurt. Your attitude should be, well, crap, I'm in a bad situation with no easy escape. I'll have to do the right things to get through it. Now, if a predator tries to intimidate with words, go ahead and answer them, but do so as an equal. Assert yourself. You may actually have to fight. Now, that stinks, but even in this case, showing no fear is your first blow against the bully. Think of it this way. The predator sees you as a likely victim and tries to scare you. That's his first blow, trying to make you afraid. You answer him firmly. That's your return blow. He's now lost his advantage. In this scenario, even if the bully does attack, he's doing so with a divided mind, and that's a big disadvantage for him. So by answering the bully, you are weakening him immediately. Now, when it comes to facing fears alone, here's one more thing to keep in mind. When you face threats by yourself, we experience high levels of stress hormones. Like it or not, useful or not, that's how the human body operates. But when we face threats in groups, our stress hormones rise to only a fraction of the solitary level. This is why armies keep men in tight units. Maybe you've noticed this in your own life. If not, try to imagine walking all alone through the dark woods at night, then hearing an animal noise behind you. Would you feel better if you had a friend or two with you? Preferably one who runs slower than you. I'm just just kidding. If you're anything close to average, yes, you'd feel better knowing you have someone there for you. Now, why we are this way doesn't really matter, but Paul Rosenberg says we are that way. Our minds are less effective when grouped with others, but our stress hormones are more placid. Ah, well. Interesting read. Paul Rosenberg, dealing with violence. Now, I'm sure there will be others, again, particularly martial artists, who'll say, hey, how could this be? You know, I'm, you know, it's, this is, you just got to do this move and <clears throat> say these words, and this is, this is going to solve the situation. I don't know that there's any one-size-fits-all approach, but I think, his, I think his basic premise is very, very sound. When someone is trying to make you afraid, don't show them that you're afraid. And even though you may feel fear, which is a very natural reaction, you can work through it. Remember, courage is what you do, not what you feel. All right, I'm going to move on. I just I thought that was a really interesting article. Now, let's see. Ah, I don't know if you followed the recent uh, testy exchanges between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci. They've been going on for a while, but they've been definitely worth keeping an eye on. And I would emphasize this is not just a personality clash. This is the epic struggle of a bureaucrat trying desperately to duck accountability. 
And there's a terrific article. Uh, Phil Magnus and James R. Harrington have put together uh, a marvelous article about uh, Fauci emails and some alleged science. I mean, just the title right there is enough to, to pull me in. Dr. Fauci is, uh, he's, he's been on the hot seat, and yet he's very, very good at, uh, at avoiding actually taking a stand. It's always, you don't understand what you're talking about. I wouldn't do anything like that. Anyway, the article says from October, this is from Phil Magnus and also James R. Herring- Harrington, James R. Harrigan, my apologies, James, uh, from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is from October 2nd through the 4th, 2020, the American Institute for Economic Research hosted a small conference for scientists to discuss the COVID-19 lockdowns. Now, just four days later, Dr. Francis Collins, the retiring director of the National Institutes of Health, would call three of the scientists in attendance fringe epidemiologists in a directive he sent to Anthony Fauci and other senior staff of his agency. Now, they were fringe epidemiologists because they had the temerity to ask whether the lockdowns of 2020 were effective. And the three of them, Martin Koldorf of Harvard, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, were simply doing what any good scientist would do, and that is following the evidence. They wrote the Great Barrington Declaration as they parted company at AIER and then posted it for all to see. So why exactly was Dr. Collins so intent on impugning these three scientists? Well, it's hard to know, mostly because any scientist worth his, worth his salt should have been happy to see further research being done. That is, after all, how ignorance is replaced by knowledge. But Collins was clearly in no mood to replace his own possible ignorance with any kind of knowledge. He was pretty sure he knew all he had to know, and this is one of the most dangerous positions a scientist can take. In an email obtained by AIER through a Freedom of Information Act request, Collins told Anthony Fauci, CCing Lawrence Tabak, Deputy Ethics Director Counselor at, uh, at uh, NIH, that he wanted a quick and devastating published takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration's premises. And they actually have posted a little, you know, screenshot of what that looked like. Now, one wonders... Why would he CC the deputy ethics counselor on this, given the trouble people seem to have with ethics, or at least these people seem to have? But they were in here. They were in October of 2020. And Fauci wrote that same night to let Collins know there was already a devastating takedown of the Great Barrington Declaration in that August scientific publication Wired. Francis Fauci wrote, I am pasting in below a piece from Wired that debunks the Great Barrington Declaration. Their science reporter, Matt Reynolds, told us there was no scientific divide over herd immunity, but that's not the funny part. The funny part came when Reynolds declared quite confidently that we no longer had anything to worry about as lockdowns were, as of October 2020, a thing of the past. The problem with the Great Barrington Declaration is that we weren't we aren't in lockdown, Reynolds explained. It's hard to find people who are advocating for a return to the lockdown we saw in March. When the Great Barrington Declaration authors declare their opposition to lockdowns, they are quite literally arguing with the past. That's a direct quote. Now this Fauci endorsed passage may be one of the worst takes of the entire pandemic. Less than a month later, lockdowns came roaring back with a vengeance. 
And Fauci wrote to Collins the next day, this time referencing a breathless op-ed by Greg Gonsalves, a public health professor at Yale in the nation. And here we arrive at yet another funny part. Gonsalves' article wasn't exactly a critique of the Great Barrington Declaration. Instead, Gonsalves went after Martin Kulldorff, who in an interview with the leftist magazine Jacobin, quite reasonably pointed out that lockdowns hurt the poor more than most talking heads were willing to admit. So Gonsalves' grievance was that by interviewing Kulldorff, Jacobin had broken the lockdown solidarity of other far-left websites, including The Nation and Boston Review. Why do they need such uniformity to maintain their narrative? Isn't the truth enough? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for engaging in wrong think on this beautiful day. <laughs> and thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers around the world. No, no joke. Yeah, we're starting to starting to pick up some international audience. I think I think it's only 5% of my audience at this point is outside the United States, but hey, it's a start. You know, if I'm going to be subversive, I guess I'd like to be subversive worldwide. So here we go. By the way, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. Straightforward. I'm just going to tell you, food storage is a great idea. It's, It's a great way to know that you have the confidence of being able to handle unforeseen circumstances, disasters, just unexpected downturns or setbacks. It's nice to know that you can stand on your own feet and you're not dependent on either the kindness of strangers or some bureaucrat to take care of you. So check out the website that I link to in my show notes. That's lifesavingfood.com. 15% discount on anything you order. No sales tax. Free delivery. It'll save you some money right up front there. Okay, back to the article. This is from Phil Magnus and James R. Harrigan. This is, they are both from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's about Fauci emails and some alleged science. Why was it so important that Dr. Fauci, among others, work to try to discredit the Great Barrington Declaration founders? And it's not like the, the Great Barrington Declaration doctors, those three doctors that uh, that had signed their names to it, uh, Martin Koldorf and also... Uh, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and Sunetra Gupta, they weren't out there, you know, parading around trying to get, you know, attention and book deals and movie and action figures, you know, like Dr. Fauci. They were just simply questioning, is there a better way for us to address this pandemic than by destroying people's lives? Shouldn't we be protecting the more vulnerable and letting other people live their lives knowing that the risk to the healthy is very, very minor? Those who get the virus have a 99-plus percent chance of surviving it. The odds are very much in your favor, if we can use some Hunger Games parlance here. But it was super important to Dr. Fauci and others, Francis Collins from the National Institutes of Health, for instance, to discredit and put these guys down. I'm sorry, these guys and this gal down. So by October 10th, the lines were well drawn. Fauci had thrust himself into the middle of the media hootenanny that was clearly emerging. Again, this is October 10th of 2020. 
Collins emailed again to boast about calling the three scientists fringe in the Washington Post. Although he told Fauci that their ongoing campaign to take down the Great Barrington Declaration will not be appreciated in the White House. Now remember, Trump was still president at this time. Fauci retorted the White House was too busy with other things to worry about the Great Barrington Declaration. There was an election to deal with, after all. And as the bedfellows became more strange, Greg Consalves wrote directly to Collins thanking him for his undiplomatic approach. For his part, Gonsalves became ever more hostile and profane in his remarks on the Great Barrington Declaration. This effing Great Barrington Declaration is like a bad rash that won't go away, Gonsalves tweeted shortly after reaching out to Collins. A day earlier, the Yale professor also began promoting unhinged conspiracy theories about the Great Barrington Declaration and American Institute for Economic Research that traced to the blog of a former 9-11 truther movement activist. Now, some of the emails between Collins and Fauci sent in response to AIER's Freedom of Information Act request have been redacted. But the surrounding context makes it pretty clear they were looking for a way to impugn the Great Barrington Declaration further if it came up at the White House COVID task force meeting on October 16th. Well, that morning, Fauci emailed Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, and he pressed the need for her to oppose the Great Barrington Declaration and set the stage for an attack on Scott Atlas, who was the most friendly champion of the Great Barrington Declaration on that White House task force. Well, Fauci, it turns out, had to miss the October 16th task force meeting, though he likely breathed a sigh of relief when Collins emailed him two days later. Atlas did not take part in the task force meeting on Friday, Collins wrote, and the Great Barrington Declaration did not come up. Another partially redacted email hints that Fauci celebrated this outcome. Atlas's opposition to the lockdown faction on the task force is driving Deb Burks crazy, he continued. Fauci and Collins weren't done, though, in their campaign to take down those uh, Great Barrington Declaration scientists. Our story picks up again in earnest on November 2nd, when Fauci's chief of staff, Greg Folkers, replied to an email that was not made public in pursuance to that Freedom of Information Act request. Now, it seems pretty clear, though, that Fauci asked Folkers for a list of sources that would allow him to argue effectively against the Great Barrington Declaration. The email subject line references a previous correspondence from Fauci as as discussed, noting that Folkers had highlighted the three I found most useful. Multiple sources, and particularly Scott Atlas's recently published account of his time on the task force, have noted that Fauci often relies on aides to curate lists of sources in advance of his many media appearances. He seldom reads the scientific literature on COVID-19 himself and instead arrives at meetings with staff-prepared talking points. And it appears that Folker's email was an answer to one such request for talking points to attack the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. Now note that Fauci frequently portrays himself as a staunch defender of science who stays above the political divide and remains outside of the partisan debates. See, in light of that, you might expect that Folker's response to Fauci's request would yield a small sample of scientific analysis on the logic behind the lockdowns, even if only in a format bullet pointed by his staff. But you'd be wrong. Folker sent Fauci a list of seven political op-eds and articles opposing the Great Barrington Declaration from popular media outlets. So, yeah, 
Science. Great article here. And lots and lots of links within it to back up what Philip W. Magnus and also uh, James R. Harrigan are saying here. If you haven't subscribed to AIER's website or to their to their uh, daily uh, newsletter that comes out and their emails, you really should. AIER.org. They have been a fabulous source of information on COVID, but also just on uh, economics in general and a lot of the things going on. This is one of the most nonpartisan outfits that I like to turn to when I want to get a really solid take. That doesn't mean, by the way, that I agree with everything that I read. But I believe that their writers are far more honest and far more um, motivated by putting truth above party than, than any almost any other source out there. There are some great sources. This is one of the best. So I highly, highly recommend it. All right, shifting gears once again. Every day we have been seeing more evidence that the people who've been calling the shots on lockdowns and vaccine mandates have been terribly wrong. This is why this matters. Why were they so anxious to take down the Great Barrington Declaration when now, a year and a half later, well, actually not quite a year and a half, but well over a year later, you have uh, scientists and, and doctors and bureaucrats starting to admit, okay, maybe what we should do is we should, uh, you know, protect the vulnerable and uh, realize that government itself cannot control this virus, which is what the Great Barrington Declaration was saying all along. I don't know what it is, but something about people in power, they can't admit they were wrong. It would destroy the illusion why society would collapse if people thought that we couldn't be trusted. Well, it's long past time for these people to stand up and be truthful. In fact, Jeff M. Lewis has some very simple, honest questions about COVID-19. And see, even even mentioning this, I, I have, have a little hesitation because it's like, okay, this is going to get me flagged and probably I, I've had one warning from YouTube. Haven't had a strike yet, but I'm sure it's coming. But I'm not living up to community standards because these are the kind of questions that, that are inconvenient they point out that there are holes in the narrative and that there, there are things that don't add up. I like how Jeff Lewis approaches this. He says, in July of 2021, I wrote about the quest for truth in our worldwide battle against SARS-CoV-2 virus and the resulted COVID-19 illness. Now, he says, I'm neither a physician, medical professional, nor a scientist, so nothing I write should be construed as medical advice or peer-reviewed opinion. But he says, I am a college-educated, mature senior citizen, or American citizen, rather, who strives to stay informed and actively seeks alternative sources of information and occasionally consumes the evening's propaganda ministry broadcast just to keep up with their side of the story. Lewis says, I consider myself able to understand and apply fundamental scientific concepts, principles, and laws to daily life. See, he's confident enough to at least ask the questions. But he says, after observing what's happening, the never-ending hysteria, the fear-mongering, the stifling of any dissent to the approved narrative, it's time to start asking more simple, honest questions. We're going to come back to his questions, just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Remember, my goal here is not to make you fearful. It's not to bring more anger to an already volatile climate. I want to just help you find your way out of the swamp of misinformation. And that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It just means we're, we're both working our way, you know, out of all the, the distortions and things which are meant to keep us in the dark and hopefully finding our way to solid ground. Some folks have been slogging along here for a long time. They've left trail markers along the way for those of us who are following. We should be doing likewise for the people who are behind us. And I'm very grateful for the article that I'm sharing right now from uh, Jeff M. Lewis. Simple, honest questions about COVID-19. Jeff Lewis says, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've engaged those who tenaciously adhere to the approved narrative about our medical establishment's response to the pandemic and been told, you're not a scientist, you don't understand. He says, I conversed with a doctoral degree candidate at a major university. She disagreed so vehemently with medical doctors who have decades of experience and are in positions of immense responsibility at medical centers across the country that she called them quacks because they supported the preventative and therapeutic use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. To this Ph.D. candidate who called herself a scientist, ivermectin is antiparasitic only and a horse dewormer that should never, ever be prescribed to humans. Now, would the reader agree that it's become particularly tiresome hearing from all the experts who continue to be wrong and continue to move the goalposts? Jeff Lewis says, for me, it's especially infuriating that the responses to simple, honest questions are usually ad hominem attacks instead of reasoned, rational, respectful, and honest discussions about the issues at hand. Since when is the science ever settled? Since when is the science a consensus? And since when does a scientist ever stop asking questions, not only to prove a hypothesis, but also in an honest and courageous attempt to disprove it, and by proving that the hypothesis is wrong, to advance scientific inquiry? Doesn't the scientific method employ both strategies to arrive at the most accurate outcomes and the more certain knowledge? Isn't that the best science? He says, given that our knowledge is neither infallible nor immutable, why are we we routinely expected to accept the science as infallible and immutable? In other words, settled. Jeff Lewis says, it's a fact that those who have had both shots plus the booster are testing positive for COVID and are getting sick. Can we now conclude the virus is mutated and is escaping the vaccine? Can we now conclude that widely administering the mRNA vaccines to the general population instead of limited distribution to those at highest risk has been a failed strategy? Can we now conclude that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has mutated and each successive variant is less susceptible to the vaccine and maybe making vaccine recipients more susceptible to becoming sick with COVID? Since when, in the course of the history of medical science, has a patient been required to get three doses of a vaccine, yet he still remains at risk of contracting the very illness for which the patient patient has been um, vaccinated? Were three doses of the polio vaccine required while still leaving the person at risk of contracting polio? Smallpox, measles, mumps, yellow fever, 
Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? Jeff Lewis asks, why has the FDA rushed the emergency use authorization of the vaccine for children? Children are among those who are the least risk, least at risk of becoming seriously ill or dying from the Wuhan lab virus and its variants. Does anyone know why? Why would we as a nation or as parents allow our children to be injected with an experimental vaccine for an illness that poses a less than one in a million chance of serious illness or death among children, even as it's been proven not to be effective against the latest, most widespread variant? He says the current White House occupant continually refers to the pandemic of the unvaccinated and has mandated that all federal employees and 85 million other employees get the vaccine. Yet those who have dutifully been fully vaccinated and boosted are now becoming ill with COVID. How then can it be a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Is the White House occupant referring to his own super spreader campaign and the nearly 2 million unvaccinated and untested illegal immigrants who entered our country since since January 20th of 2021? and who have been stealthily spirited by his administration to locales and municipalities across the country? Does he mean those unvaccinated? Uh, no. See, if this administration was serious about shutting down the virus, Biden would secure the border. He says, allow me to offer an analogy. Those who serve now and have served in the armed forces of the United States have been trained to fight America's enemies, to fight and never surrender of our own free will while we have the means to continue fighting. This means that while there are weapons, ammunition, and warriors to use them, it is our duty to fight. Now he says, as a veteran, then I, have, I look at every dietary supplement, every vitamin, every medicine that has the potential to be, as, to be effective as a weapon in this fight against the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and I want all who are able to use them in this fight. So why have the CDC, the National Institute of Health, the FDA, and every other agency, the alphabet soup of our big government medical bureaucracies, not focused at all on prevention? In other words, diet, fitness, reducing obesity, educating the public about how to strengthen and fortify their natural immunity so as not to get COVID in the first place. He says we must effectively employ the preventative measures Therapies and medicines, the weapons we have now. When people are dying, physicians must not be restricted to only those medicines that have completed a peer-reviewed, double-blind, blue-ribbon study and then are authorized only for narrowly defined and specific use. Does anyone remember that in 2020 we were facing the novel, meaning new, coronavirus? Now as then, we need to fight against the variants of this new virus with the weapons slash medicines that are effective as the off-label use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin has demonstrated in the United States and other countries. And this is the burning question. Why are these FDA-approved medicines, both of which have been safely prescribed for decades, restricted from our general use in the fight against COVID? For that matter, why is Anthony Fauci, you know, advocating that the post office seize people's uh, shipments of ivermectin that are being mailed to them? Jeff Lewis asks, why are we myopically insisting that we only use one weapon? In hindsight, the vaccines haven't been employed as they should have been. 
and now have been rendered largely ineffective at reducing the spread of COVID-19. Why do we continue with this failed strategy? He says, we've always known it is in any and every virus's nature to evolve and mutate in order to survive. Have we lost sight of this basic lesson of medical science? He says, I'm sure the reader also has many simple, honest questions of their own. There are many doctors and scientists of goodwill and intention working in good faith to answer simple, honest questions. We must be persistent in asking them. We must be persistent in demanding answers. I'll have a link to his commentary in today's show notes. I hope you'll check it out. Something else I'm going to throw in here, and this is just, uh, uh, this is something for you to consider. Well, actually, I may save this to the next hour. We're, we're coming up fast. I, the, I've talked about fourth-turning historical cycles. I'm going to share some excerpts coming up in the next hour from, uh, from Jim Quinn, who writes for theburningplatform.com. Holy cow. Does this guy have some amazing insights on what's going on and how the fourth turning historical cycle that's currently playing out in front of us is building to its climax? It's fascinating stuff. It's, I will tell you, it's, it's a little bit daunting because uh, we've been through this before. If you want to go back about 80 years or so, the climax of uh, the last fourth turning was the Great Depression and World War II and uh, World War II. I mean, that was, that was a pretty bloody climax. Prior to that, the, the fourth turning before that would have been the Civil War and Reconstruction. Prior to that, it was the American Revolution and founding period. Now, I guess the good news is you can look back and say, okay, but we survived all of those turnings. And it's true, we did. So the question that's before us is, will we be better off or worse off as this next turning plays out. And I don't have the answer for that. Nobody does at this point because it's, it's, not, it's not predictable like, well, if we just hold our nose this way and put one hand in the air, everything's going to be just fine. There's still a lot of stuff in motion, but this much we can know for sure when, when the dust settles on the other side of that fourth turning, things are going to look very different. I'm going to be doing everything in my power to make sure that it's a positive change as opposed to a negative one. And I would encourage you to do likewise. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You've heard the rumors and they are true. There is a war on for your mind. Yep, there are forces out there contending to try to convince you that uh, this way is up, that way is down, this is black, this is white, and there's a lot of deception out there too, so I'm not here to muddy the waters further, but I'm here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible, to own your worldview, and above all, to be more certain about who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're against or who you're against. I'm grateful that you would uh, join me for this session of Wrong Think and encourage you, please, visit my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. 
take note of who my sponsors are and wherever possible. Either send them a message telling them that you heard their message or, better still, do business with them. They are, after all, the folks who allow me to do what I do. So as I teased in the last hour of the show, I uh, I have a, a great commentary here from Jim Quinn, who writes for The Burning Platform. Jim has been one of the more serious students of the fourth-turning methodology of studying historical cycles. And one of the things I like about Jim Quinn, uh, he's very thorough, first of all. But he's also one of the most unflinching proponents of truth that I know of. And because of that, I highly recommend taking a look at at his, uh, his analysis of how things are playing out. Now, he starts with a couple of quotes here from the fourth turning, and I'm just, I'm offering these not as, you know, see, this proves that it's all, you know, 100%, you know, uh, reality. But I do think that Strauss and Howe were onto something in the way that they looked at these historical cycles. And if if we can, for, for the sake of those who aren't really familiar with it, in a nutshell, civilizations go through essentially four turnings over the course of a long lifetime, about 80 to 120 years. And you could roughly equate these to the kinds of seasons that we see play out through the years, or through through the year, through the calendar year. We are definitely deep in the winter stage, which is the fourth turning of, of the current cycle, the seculum, as it's called. Here's a quote from Strauss and Howe. Try to unlearn the obsessive fear of death and the anxious quest for death avoidance that pervades linear thinking in nearly every modern society. The ancients knew that without periodic decay and death, nature cannot complete its full round of biological and social change. Without plant death, weeds would strangle the forest. Without human death, memories would never die. And unbroken habits and customs would strangle civilization. Social institutions require no less. Just as floods replenish soil and fires rejuvenate forests, a fourth turning clears out society's exhausted elements and creates an opportunity. Now, another quote from the same book. Institutions will be increasingly bossy, limiting personal freedoms, chastising bad manners and cleansing the culture. Powerful new civic organizations will make judgments about which individual rights deserve respect and which do not. Criminal justice will become swift and rough, trampling on some innocence to protect an endangered and desperate society from those feared to be guilty. Expect a loss of personal privacy. Fourth turnings can be dark times for the free spirit. Just as one kind of official may have new authority to do something for you, another kind, some hastily deputized magistrate, may have new authority to do something to you. Now keep in mind, this book was published back in 1997. But I'd say they're pretty accurately describing a lot of the atmosphere that we're operating in today. So here's what Jim Quinn has to say. He says, look, it's been almost a year since my annual look ahead at the upcoming year. Last year's article, Fourth Turning Detonation, was a big picture overview of where we stood during the 13th year of this ongoing fourth turning crisis. Now, he says, I'd given up trying to make specific predictions because the 20-year length of a crisis period does not lend itself to specificity within a given year. In fact, his comment at the beginning of the article was, predicting the actual events which will occur over a short-term time frame is a fool's errand. So I prefer to try to discern the direction and amplitude of the ongoing crisis to gauge how we should prepare 
for what's coming. And he reminds us, the consistent drivers of this fourth turning are the three unequivocal factors, debt, civic decay, and global disorder. The specific events creating the daily trials and tribulations of this fourth turning all have their basis in one or more of these three driving factors. So as we entered 2021, he says, my big picture view was the globalist elite want to keep the fear at a high level to institute their global reset, where you will own nothing and be happy, or you'll be brought to heel by the truncheon. Now he says, it's clear, I nailed that one. The fear level is ramped to 11 on the volume dial. It was truly one of the worst years for liberty-minded, critical thinking, self-sufficient individuals in the last 80 years. We know history does not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. Fourth turnings always sweep away the existing social order, and we are in the midst of a whirlwind of transformation with an entirely uncertain outcome that could result in reviving the founder's idea of the republic or mark the end of this experiment born in the blood of patriots in 1776. He says the 13th year of this fourth turning saw a dramatic increase in the intensity of conflict between competing factions in this ongoing war of wokeness, disinformation, and globalist machinations. It was a fantastic year for Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson as they raked in billions of profits and their executives got rich as their stock prices soared. It wasn't a great year for the tens of millions of people duped into believing their experimental concoctions disguised as vaccines would protect them from the COVID flu. Jim Quinn says the captured media mouthpieces appear to be suppressing some easily reportable data points that do not jive with their narrative of safe and effective vaccines. If the vaccines worked, how could there be more deaths after the vaccine rollout than before the rollout? The gyrations and warped rationale used by the vaxxed to explain why their vaccines do not work is a wonder to behold. He says the ever-changing description of what a vaccine is supposed to do and the revisionist history regarding what was promised by mass murderer Fauci, Dullard, Walensky, Dementia Joe, and Cackling Kamala about the vaccines stopping COVID, keeping you safe from COVID, and ending the pandemic is an example of a corrupt, immoral, deceitful establishment hell-bent on achieving their real goal at any cost of lives or national treasure. And he says their real goal all along has been the implementation of the Great Global Reset, as laid out by Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, George Soros, and their Davos cronies inhabiting the financial, corporate, media, military, and health rackets. This has never been about health or about protecting the world's population from a highly marketed, weaponized annual flu. Marginally lethal to really, really old people, the extremely obese, and people too stupid to do research regarding cheap, safe therapeutics. It has been and continues to be about power, control, and wealth. They want more and want you to have less. He says Joe Biden was installed as president through the use of the COVID flu as a means to steal the election through mail-in ballot fraud. I should probably point out here, you don't have to agree with everything he's saying here, and I'm not suggesting, oh, he's, hey, this is written in stone, man. This is absolutely 100% right. But I definitely think he's more right than wrong. So you have to draw your own conclusions. I'm just saying he has a viewpoint, Jim Quinn has a viewpoint worth considering. 
He says Biden supposedly won by promising to defeat the virus through vaccines, masking, mandates, and lockdowns. Well, he's failed miserably. More deaths after mass rollout of vaccines. The vaccines, masks, and lockdowns have been complete and utter failures. Their mantra has been trust the science, but in reality it has been obey our commands, disregard actual science, and believe our narrative, or we will destroy your life. Now, if these supposed vaccines worked, how could there be 440,000 deaths with COVID in 2021 after the vaccine rollout versus 385,000 in 2020 with no vaccine and a more potent variant of the flu? According to the CDC, 62% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, whatever that means, and this is what we've achieved. Now, cases are currently 200% higher than they were at the January 2021 peak when virtually no one was vaxxed. Look, I don't think he's trying to make you feel bad, but he's definitely putting some inconvenient uh, truth out there, or some facts out there for consideration that are going to make some people uncomfortable. I'll leave the rest of the article. It's a very lengthy one from Jim Quinn. It's in the show notes. You can. I'll leave it to you to to sift through and see what you think. I guess the bottom line for me is the narrative, the official narrative, has not held up well. It has not aged well. So what do you do? Do you try to find a reason to believe or do you shift your thinking? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know it may sound weird, but uh, I really, really enjoy getting to, uh, to sit down each day and share what I hope is useful information for people who are serious about owning their own worldview, serious about claiming their heritage as free individuals. And I realize it's not everybody. So I, I have no illusion. Yes, why, what I'm selling, this is what the masses want. They want to hear this more than anything. Now, truth be told, the masses really would rather run the other direction than consider a lot of the information that I'm able to share on this program. And, and that doesn't mean that they're stupid. It doesn't mean they're a bunch of fraidy cats. They can't handle the truth. No truth handler, you. Bah! I deride your truth handling abilities. It's quoting Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons here. I think it's more a matter of uh, it's, it's a hard time for people to know who they are, know what they stand for, really drill down to where you know your principles well enough that you'd be willing to suffer in order to live up to your principles. But the reason I do what I do is because there are such people out there. And I know that they are looking for truth. They are looking for further light, you know, to help them better navigate their way through this, you know, dark and sometimes scary world. And so I try to give them the best material that I can find. Not not that I have all the answers. I just happen to have... Uh, have access to a lot of really uh, good resources for wrong thinkers and have access to a, a small but growing platform for those who are looking for the truth, for whom the truth matters more than just simply being comfortable. We've all lived through times in our lives where it's more comfortable to just live with whatever the lies are and, you know, not make any waves. 
But I don't think that's an option. Not if we wish to retain the most precious things about our lives. And I'm talking things like personal liberty, like freedom of conscience, our ability to to enjoy security in our property rights, to associate with whom we want to associate with, and to, to freely worship according to the dictates of our conscience. I think all of those things are right now very much hanging in the balance. And that's why I speak up like I do, and that's why I, I celebrate these many wonderful commentators out there who likewise contribute information that, that builds our understanding and helps us better know who we are and where we stand. So, having said that, if someone were to suggest, hey, we're living in revolutionary times, I would be inclined to nod my head and say, you're right, we, we are. I mean, the, sadly, there's a lot of uh, a lot of Marxist revolutionaries running around out there. We're not supposed to notice, but uh, you know that the whole dressed in black block, you know, overthrow everything that came before. That's been done before. You know, new names, new faces, same tactics, and it's all it, it, just so we're clear. It's all part of a much larger eternal battle between light and darkness that's been going on since long before we ever happened on the scene. Just understand the dynamic that drives it. Now, the question is, what kind of revolution are we experiencing? Ron Paul says we need a revolution of ideas, the kind of ideas that don't rely on the force of government for their legitimacy. He says a recent Washington Post University of Maryland poll found that 34% of Americans think violent action against the government can be justifiable. Now, this view is held by 40% of Republicans and 23% of Democrats. And the result may seem surprising since leftists have been responsible for much of the recent politically motivated violence, and many Democrats have called for violence against Trump supporters. However, the cultural Marxists appear to have temporarily ceased using violence as a tactic. Although had President Trump won re-election, it may well have been Antifa members inside the Capitol on January 6th trying to stop the steal. Ron Paul says the rising support for violence against government is rooted in the growing and justified belief that the people's liberties are being taken by a ruling class that's indifferent at best and hostile at worst to their values and concerns. I should point out, too, that just yesterday, two different articles landed on my desk about the Army uh, training their special forces, training in North Carolina and other states, um, how to fight an insurgency against American freedom fighters. And they're talking seasoned freedom fighters. I would assume that would be former veterans or uh, former military members, um, people who would be standing up against having their rights taken. And it was followed with another report about the Department of Justice now creating a new task force specifically focused on domestic extremism. That's a fancy term for people like you and me who have determined that I will not kneel down and surrender my freedoms without so much as a whimper. So, I mean, I know that's pretty dangerous, subversive thought, but there it is. The devastation wrought by the lockdown, says Ron Paul, as well as the conflict over the promotion of masks, vaccines, critical race theory, transgenderism, all have heightened our social tensions. And he says another major contributor to the social unrest is the economy. 
Rising prices combined with supply shortages and increasing national debt are all signs that we may be witnessing the final days of the Keynesian welfare warfare state. Unless Congress immediately begins to cut spending and transition to a free market monetary system, America will soon face a major economic crisis. And the crisis will likely be caused by a collapse of the dollar's value. This will likely lead to increased violence. The violence will start when those who believe they are entitled to live off the stolen property of their fellow citizens decide to take matters into their own hands because the government can no longer do the looting for them. Now, he says the only way to avoid this fate is by a revolution. But he clarifies, I'm not speaking of a violent revolution that replaces one form of authoritarianism with another, but a peaceful revolution of ideas. Ron Paul says the revolution, this revolution aims to replace the authoritarian interventionist ideology that dominates both the left and right wings of the ruling class with the ideas of liberty. Such a revolution would restore respect for individual liberty, constitutional government, free markets, a non-interventionist foreign policy, and sound money. He says the revolution of ideas would resolve social conflicts by getting the government out of social issues and instead allowing private property owners to, for example, decide who can and cannot use which restroom on their property. It would also restore control over education to parents. The goal is to respect the rights of each individual to live their lives as they choose, as long as they do not violate the rights of others to do the same. A free market with a sound currency would release lower-income Americans from the Federal Reserve's inflation tax, as well as provide them with expanded economic opportunities. The growing economy would reduce tensions between races and lead Americans to view immigrants as an asset rather than a burden. Ron Paul says a free and peaceful society cannot be brought about by a violent revolution. Instead, it must occur via peaceful conversation of a critical mass of citizens. And when that critical mass is reached, even many authoritarian politicians will endorse liberty and limited government out of fear of losing re-election if they do not. Therefore, the best thing those of us who know the truth can do to restore a free society is to convert as many people as possible to the movement for liberty, peace, and prosperity. Now, sadly, there are a lot of folks, even on the side of freedom, who are kind of geared up and have this mentality of, no, it's it's time to fight. It's time to stand up and fight each other in the streets until there's a winner and we have our freedom back. Look, I think there are times when, uh, when violence and bloodshed may be justifiable in defending those things that are most precious to us. But I'm not sure it's a defensive stance that a lot of these folks are wanting to take. I do agree with this. Helping change people's hearts and minds is going to go a lot further than simply getting out and flexing in the streets. But you can't do that until you've got your own stuff in order, till you've sorted out your own thinking. So if you're looking for a place to start, I'd say that's as good a place as any. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you are anywhere within the state of Utah and have any need for a mortgage, whether it be a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe even a refinance on your existing mortgage, I would encourage you to reach out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and get it done. Get it done quickly and and get it done right. Heather has decades of experience. She's the one you want on your side when time is of the essence. And if you're shopping for a home, you know it's a very competitive market. you got to move quickly. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you move quickly with your financing, getting you the loan you need at the best rates possible. Call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go to 619 South Bluff Street to visit her business. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, it seems sometimes like we have to choose between being misled by lies and propaganda or we risk being misled by misinformation and conspiracy theories. I mean, isn't there kind of a dynamic where, you know, well, if you don't listen to us, you know, then uh, that's one way or the other. You're being accused of being totally misled. Got a great article here from the Good Citizen Substack, which I'm finding to be a remarkable, insightful resource for wrong thinkers. And I love the title of this one. Indiana, Alex Jones and the Last Conspiracy Theory. <laughs> That's a nice play on the, on the Indiana Jones series. Big collusion, parallel realities, and stubborn certainty in our hijacked information age. So the good citizen says you must choose wisely. We hear a great deal about mass formation and mass psychosis these days. The psychological theories are palatable and familiar enough to be distributed among those who can recognize truths, associate them with our two-year nightmare, and easily communicate them to others. Free-floating anxiety, personal anxiety, isolation, segregation, engineered fear through propaganda for social division and control, these are all interconnected, but they require greater examination for comprehending the machinations of our machine of our information age rather especially the propaganda side of the equation which is really the wellspring of resultant psychological responses in other words the propaganda of today is not your grandmother's propaganda now here one could dive into the nature of propaganda its history and all the literary staples of propaganda studies but in trying to convince others that what they believe to be true is actually propaganda This methodology might be as effective as that David Foster Wallace story about fish comprehending what water is. With the ubiquitous nature of the propaganda we experience today, a life source for millions of misguided worldviews and beliefs, a different approach is required. And here's a quote that he uses. The most impressive and fascinatingly spectacular thing about propaganda today is the people trapped in its spell believe they are simply and passively engaging art, education, cinema, late-night entertainment, online news, and information searches and consumption. This is how the powers that be can socially engineer a catatonic state of blissful ignorance and total obedience in millions of people around the world through one series of events. Their lives are constantly controlled. Their impressions and stimuli are always carefully managed. Their perception of it all is under the spell that they are freely making choices for information that haven't already been made for them through behavioral conditioning and predictive engineering, end quote. 
Now, The Good Citizen says all of the above is related to the process of passively accepting information rather than discerningly choosing information. The former is done for you. The latter requires a dedicated effort that, re- that results in not being a manipulated ignoramus. Now, here the author says, look, I don't mean to insult you, reader, but this is a far more profound collective crisis than a virus. And most of the past two years does not happen if the majority out there were not lazy, passive acceptors of information. Now that the introduction is concluding and your attention spans are fading, the impulse to depart this essay and return to your regularly scheduled program is going to be overwhelming soon. If I keep writing, you'll leave. Another sentence and you'll be gone. Let's play a game. Only one of the three options below is true. You must accept and choose wisely. A. A novel coronavirus was transmitted at wet market in Wuhan, China through a bat and an intermediary animal before infecting humans. The novel virus was first identified from an outbreak in December 2019 and attempts to contain it there failed, allowing it to spread across the globe. To protect their citizens, governments across the West had to lock down societies to keep the virus from spreading and hospitals from becoming too overwhelmed with patients. In addition to necessary lockdowns, health experts implemented other safety measures to slow the spread of the virus, including masks, social distancing, and contact tracing using human and digital surveillance technologies. Thanks to scientific breakthroughs in biotechnology, vaccines were quickly developed, tested, and approved for mass distribution around the world. The vaccines are safe, effective, and necessary to protect the health and safety of citizens, especially the most vulnerable. They should be mandatory for everyone to participate in society to protect the health of everyone else. So there's choice one. Here's your second choice. B. A coronavirus may have escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan, China in December of 2019, where important research on bat coronaviruses was being conducted. The virus was identified and sequenced by the Chinese government and distributed around the world for companies to begin the process of developing vaccines. Government-imposed lockdowns were necessary to keep hospitals from being overwhelmed with patients. Other measures and safeguards were put in place to buy time until the vaccines could be safely tested and then approved for emergency use. Some of these measures were more effective than others, but governments and policymakers did the best they could with a rapidly evolving situation. The masks turned out to be to not be as effective as we were told, and the vaccines not as effective or safe as they initially believed, but are still a useful tool in protecting the health and safety of those who want them. Okay, there's selection B. Here is selection C. A lab-engineered coronavirus that was not novel was intentionally released in Wuhan, China in September or October of 2019 during the World Military Games. The virus is a bioweapon with a deadly spike protein inserted to make it highly transmissible and toxic in humans. As it spread across across the globe, governments across the West coordinated harmful policies and measures that intentionally did far more harm than good and sold it to the people as necessary for their health and safety. Early effective treatments were ignored or suppressed, cases manipulated with false positive results, and for the first time in human history, harm was collectivized to retract civil liberties while only the government cures were ex- while the only government cures were experimental vaccines already in waiting which would be forced on entire populations through human rights violating coercive measures 
The entire purpose of all of it was to usher in vaccine passports so governments could have total control over their populations whose liberties would now be contingent on them doing whatever they were told for health and safety and the common good. So there are your three choices, and only one of the two choices or two options below is true. He says you must accept and choose wisely. One will nurture your immunity to engineered fear. The other will nurture your immunity to common sense. So first choice is it could be argued that I've created three paragraphs littered with intentional lies and propaganda to discredit two of them and enhance only one of them. Or it could be argued that I've created three paragraphs littered with conspiracy theories and misinformation to discredit two of them and enhance only one of them. Now, some of you will choose the correct option, D. Others will choose the correct option, E. Here's the kicker, though. You will all be certain that you have chosen correctly. This ability to exist in parallel realities is rooted in a stubborn certainty, which is the technologically, algorithmically, socially engineered illusion of our maladroit, hijacked information age. The arrogance and now cruelty that's derived from this stubborn certainty will be the end of all of us. Isn't that interesting? And I think I think this is a really good exercise in showing those three different scenarios are going to sound like lies and propaganda to some and misinformation and conspiracy theories to others. And I think a lot of that's going to depend on where you get your information, how you go about uh, building your understanding of the world around you. I'm going to come back to this article from The Good Citizen here in just a few moments, but look, I, I'm not trying to, to pretend that, uh, yeah, you know, those of us who see what's going on, we're so far above this. It's a daily struggle for me, and I, I feel like I'm pretty practiced in that uh, I've spent the better part of the last 30 years very actively trying to find the best information that I can and, and being very skeptical about even the best information that I find until I'm sure that it squares with the truth. But I still struggle. And I still find myself going, holy cow, how do you sort this out? I know this, you don't do it passively. You cannot just sit back and absorb whatever information is being beamed at you through whatever screen you're looking at and expect to be well-informed you got to be willing to do some homework, and that takes effort. Not everybody's willing to engage in that kind of effort. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Linked in today's show notes, you will find a link that will take you to this uh, Good Citizen article, Indiana Alex Jones and the Last Conspiracy. It's pretty clever stuff, and I, I think this, I, I'm really enjoying, I just stumbled across the Good Citizen substack just a couple of weeks ago, but I've seen more and more of these articles being published and have found them immensely helpful especially when it comes down to the idea of how do you discern between what is lies and propaganda and what is misinformation and conspiracy theories. And I don't think it helps to pretend that there's only one or the other. I think there's a mixture of both of them out there. But when it comes to being a fact checker, this is not something you want to outsource to somebody else. If you choose to outsource it, you're going to be 
at the mercy of someone else's agenda. There's just no other way around it. And for a lot of folks, at least I'll start with myself, the hardest part was learning to trust my own thinking and to trust my own ability to to dig for the truth and to, to sort it out and then come to a conclusion and yet still be open-minded enough that <clears throat> if I encounter new information that, that is relevant and can be seen to be truthful, that I would adjust my thinking. Let's go back to the article. Talk about big collusion. So there were three scenarios, and then you were given the choice of, okay, so was uh, were these three scenarios intentional lies and propaganda, or the second choice, were they conspiracy theories and misinformation? The article says, under the lies and propaganda of option D, one could insert the names of corporate media sources and their legacy media conglomerate owners. So in the U.S., there are only five conglomerates that control all information. Disney, News Corp, uh, Comcast, Viacom, Turner. Now, this is down from thousands of companies just 40 years ago. These big five have global partners in international news desks, Reuters, AFP, Associated Press, and state partners in CBC, ABC, BBC, NPR, and their five big surveillance and intelligence agencies, CIA, GCHQ, etc. Now, they also have big tech partners in Google, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, and all of their subsidiaries, Instagram, YouTube, etc. So this is one giant big collusion propaganda machine that serves global corporate interests by creating narratives, omitting facts, and blatantly lying and smearing those who challenge their information cartel. Notably, independent and alternative sources of information that are not corrupted by corporate or global state powers. Their preferred methods of smearing those who challenge their power are to label them conspiracy theorists, and their information is misinformation. This is their smoke-and-mirrors operation reinforced by oligarch-funded Orwellian fact-checkers. So one essentially has two choices. You can get your information from their authoritative sources of big collusion and be completely misinformed as to sound delusional like some Supreme Court justices while being certain you have the correct information, or you can ignore the pejorative conspiracy theorist and get all your information from non-corporate sources that have been labeled by corporations misinformation. Now, if your mind has been open and you are an objective and rational person, you'll see that over the past two years, everything that was once considered a conspiracy theory ended up coming true, from government-mandated vaccine passports down to uh, compulsory injections to keep one's job and participate in society, all the way down to crazy depopulation agenda theories that cannot be ignored as nations force experimental injections into children ages 5 to 11 who have a 20,000% greater risk of, let's see, who have a 20,000% greater risk of harm from that injection than they do from death with any variant of the virus. Now, for those who love their misguided traffic safety analogies, this would be like dumping your kids in the car without seatbelts and then racing through yellow lights across every intersection in town while downing shots of vodka every 10 minutes. No sane person would do that to their children, yet there are millions who believe it's for their children's own good to take them to be injected with what they've been told is a vaccine. Having bad information today and being so certain it's good information is extremely deadly. 
Now, is this stubborn certainty rooted in how we acquire and process the information that are the sources for what we believe? From here, the discussion shifts to parallel realities. And the certainty paradox of our hijacked information age results in the creation of these parallel realities. Some will recognize one of the three choices above to be more truthful and accurate than the others, while recognizing people they know who believe another choice to be more truthful and accurate than what they believe. So during our pandemic crisis, this has been a frustrating source of animosity between colleagues, friends, and families, all of whom are far too certain that only they are correct and they alone. And they become so desperate to convince others, and they're devastated when they don't succeed. They simply cannot comprehend why these friends and families cannot see what is so obviously glaringly true and vice versa. Now, all major technologies we once relied on for information acquisition have been hijacked for psychological operations relating to propaganda dissemination for manipulation and control. This is nothing new. In the past, it was much easier to control methods of information dissemination through analog technologies like printing presses or the radio or a single television in each home with four channels. The propaganda was more overt rather than cloaked. The rising digital tides have eroded old methods and led to the adoption of new propaganda strategies and tactics that are no longer reserved for nations alone, but work like a globally interconnected propaganda machine. How we acquire information, consume information, process information, and redistribute that information through our attention networks, formerly known as social networks, is very different from how propaganda was unleashed in the past for psychological manipulation. Now, our understanding of truth and reality is only as good as our methods of information acquisition. So the majority of people still use the Google Truth Machine, known as Google Search. Facebook and YouTube have their own truth machine search engines that will only show big collusion sources. Your chances of getting any facts to help you understand an issue or story by des- is by design impossible. Wikipravda, <laughs> formerly known as Wikipedia, sorry, that's a, that's a great way to put it, has also been completely hijacked by big collusion forces. It could be argued that entire fields of academia are also working directly for corporate interests or ideological alliances rather than for truth and enlightenment. All of these preferred methods of information acquisition have become hijacked by big collusion. How easy it is with a global centralized truth machine to engineer the ignorance and inactions of people and get them to believe that they arrived at their compliance and obedience all on their own. Now, 10 years ago, social scientists were sounding the alarm on Facebook when more than half of Americans used it as their primary platform for news and information. By the end of this decade, that figure reached 10, rather 8 out of 10 people. Big collusion sources dominate the platform, while alternative sources are banned or blacklisted for spreading harmful speech or misinformation. People who share big collusion sources on Facebook or Twitter are amplifying the lies and propaganda to their followers, who in turn amplify them until the network effect sends them around the world. The attention networks have oligarch-funded fact-checkers who also amplify the lies and propaganda and smear alternative sources that challenge the big collusion-engineered narratives. Now, these networks are designed to trap users into a false reality of their own clicking. Their views are catered to, to using predictive algorithms to extract their attention. See, attention is capital. 
The more time and attention users spend on these platforms, the more they enrich the shareholders and executives who are not interested in open, honest debate with a multitude of viewpoints. In other words, they're controlled platforms to reinforce confirmation biases and to push users into greater and greater certainty without being challenged by opposing views. And the consequences of information echo chambers today is far worse than anything Eli Parser in his book, The Filter Bubble, could ever have predicted. Now, from here, the article goes into balkanized attention platforms, the politicization of everything, the three paths, which you may remember from Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade. So here's the thing. If you are willing to assume that these tests are what the information gatekeepers of today want everyone to undertake, witness, submission, the blind leap of faith, they're the almighty words we must blindly accept. And for the millions who take the leap of faith and believe what the corporate state information overlords are telling them, there's no bridge to support them when they leap. They are leaping into a deep, dark ravine of mass psychosis and brainwashing. But if science and truth cannot rest on the assumption and faith, then this is a certain path to superstition and folly, which is what we're constantly asked to accept at the expense of actively choosing sound information rooted in fact, reason, and reality. But this path is not the path to eternal life, but eternal darkness, and it's all being engineered by design. What a great article. This is The Brian Hyde Show.